Well, why don't you grab your Bible now, and uh, if you haven't already done so, turn to the book of Job. And what I want to do as we, uh, as we jump in here, it's so hard in a book that's this long, and we're in what we might call the, the bark inspecting part of the book, where instead of examining the beauty of the forest from 40,000 feet, we have uh, parachuted into the forest, and we're wandering around examining individual trees and digging up details and nuggets that we can find and uh, we don't want to get lost in the woods as we do that. So uh, just by way of review, what I want to do is just kind of remind you, now that we're in this section of dialogue, in essence, what has happened in each chapter, okay? Maybe like a one-sentence review of what's happened in each chapter so we can kind of provide some context as we come to chapter 11. You'll remember the, um, in chapter 3... That's when Job finally cries out and he says, Why did God give me life? If this is how it was going to turn out, what was the point? You, and you remember that, right? He says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did, why did God give me life if this is the suffering that I would go through? And that's, uh, that's Job. He sort of starts the, the narrative portion here. And then you'll remember in chapters 4 and 5 that Eliphaz responds. And do you remember what he says? He says, Job, the innocent don't suffer. Which is a very uh, nice, subtle way of saying um, you're not innocent, Job. There's clearly sin in your life because of the suffering that's going on. Okay, And he encourages him to repent and seek God. And then Job's going to respond in chapter 6 and chapter 7. <laughs> and uh, this, this was one of the um, real difficult parts of the book. He says, I wish that God would just kill me. And he rebukes his friends. He says the friends should be kind. He realizes that he t- he's taking their criticism as they're accusing him of lying, and he finally ends in a very bitter place where he tells God, leave me alone. You remember that? And then uh, Bildad steps up to the plate in chapter 8, and he says, your kids sinned. That's why this has come upon them. They, they sinned. Uh, they suffered for it. And he also encourages him to seek God and he will restore your fortune. And then last time uh, we saw in uh, chapter 9 and then in uh, chapter 9 and 10, we see Job responding to that. Um, and we see him right back in that mode of trying to trust God claiming his innocence, saying that God is right, but then accusing God of injustice. We see him all over the map trying to figure out what's going on. And that leads us to chapter 11, where Zophar, the third friend, is going to uh, pitch in here and uh, tell us what he thinks about all of this. By the way, just a footnote, um, most commentators think that based on the order of the books in this culture, uh, it would have been inappropriate and impolite for the younger people to speak before the older people. So probably what's going on is Eliphaz is the oldest of the friends, Bildad is in the middle, and Zophar is in the end, just kind of going with what was accepted in the culture in that day. And I don't know, I think the picture that pops into our mind is so important when we study a book like this. I don't know what you think about, but Job is probably in his 60s at least, maybe in his 70s. His friends, because he's going to allude to their age, his friends are older than he is. So I don't, I don't know if, if um, this is how you picture it, but this is prob- these are probably three guys in their 70s or 80s gathering around this man outside the city who's unrecognizable, who's sitting on the trash heap, who's, who's uh, 
clothes are torn, has dust on his head, and they're consoling him, they're encouraging him. And I don't know about you, that just changes the picture for me. I don't know why the men are younger in my mind when I think about them, but these are, these are old, seasoned, wise men that have gathered um, in, in their retirement days. You know, put, put that spin on it for a minute. How, how long did they travel? Several weeks to go from where they live to where Job lives for the sole purpose of encouraging and helping uh, their friend. So that's the picture that's going on. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the, uh, the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? <laughs> um, remember I told you last time, the, the longer this goes on, what do we see in the friends? When we've, we've heard it enough now to, to probably catch, catch on what's going on. The longer this dialogue goes on, what do you see being introduced into the dialogue more and more? Criticism of okay, criticism. Sarcasm. sarcasm. In fact, oh, we're going to see some, scar- some sarcasm in our friend Job today. Um, I think Job is one of the most sarcastic characters in all of Scripture, actually. You read some of the stuff that he writes. Um, (laughs) This book is so honest because it does exactly what we do. The first time we go to minister to somebody who we think is wrong, what do we do? We kind of beat around the bush. We're real nice. We're gracious. We're kind of elbowing them a little bit. And the more stubborn that person is, what happens? Okay, the more that kind of the politeness falls down, we're not as gracious, we're not as kind, we're much more direct. We might even be behaving uh, to have a more of a frustrated tone with them. And, and Zophar, who's been listening to this for, what, seven chapters now, he says, can a talkative man be acquitted? Remind you of the proverb, where words are many, transgression is unavoidable, right? Shall your boasts silence men, verse 3, and shall you scoff and none rebuke you? For you have said, my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two signs. Let's stop right there. What is he saying? What do you think he's saying? Okay, he's being wise in his own eyes. That, that's definitely true. But what? <laughs> one of the problems with Job is there are, there are portions that are really, I'd say, say funny, because they're, they're not fun, and parts are funny, but, but we've got to get past the language barrier to get to the heart of what he's saying. And once you get there, you go, wow. Well, what's he saying here? He says, shall your boast silence men? You've said, my teaching is pure. I am innocent in your eyes. What's he saying? Job, exactly. Right. Okay, there you go. Yeah, Job, he's saying, Job, you claim to be innocent. Look at the next verse. But that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, um, if God did speak, he would sure show you, wouldn't he? You think you're innocent, but if God were to speak, he'd tell you how it is. He'd show you that what we're saying is right. And it's interesting here, he says, for sound wisdom has two sides, and it's a difficult phrase to translate, but it probably means uh, what one of you said, that um, you know, there are kind of, kind of two sides here to wisdom, two sides to every story, we might say. But look at the end of verse 6. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. What he's saying is, he's saying, you think this is bad? God's not even starting to punish you for all of your sins. He's just punishing you for a little bit of your sins is probably what he's saying at the end of verse 6 there. He says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he, meaning God, passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? You know, it's interesting. All the characters have a very high view of God. They're just very wrong about him sometimes but they all know he's powerful they all know he controls everything they all know his uh, wisdom is above men verse 11 for he knows false men 
and he sees iniquity without investigating. Okay, now, why would he say that? Okay, God knows everything, and he especially knows what? He knows your heart. He knows who the sinners are, right? And he knows who the sinners are without doing what? What does it say? Without investigating, right? God doesn't need to go and send out a whole bunch of people to do some research, to have a, a courtroom scene, so to speak, to get to the truth. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he knows uh, who's committing iniquity and who's sinful and who's not. And, and, and that's, well, let's put it up here. God knows sinful men without even investigating. And Zophar says that because what does Job want to do? He wants to have a court setting, doesn't he? He wants to have a trial. And Zophar is saying, God doesn't need that. He knows. He knows who's sinful and who's not. He knows that you're sinful. There's no trial necessary. Look at verse 13. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, and if iniquity is in your hand, put it far from you, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Okay, what's he saying there? Repent, okay? You notice all three of the friends have told Job to do what we should do when we're sinful, right? That's repent. Go to God. Turn to Him. Ask for His mercy and grace. Put wickedness from you. But watch this, verse 15. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. For you would forget your trouble as waters have passed by. You would remember it, and your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Now stop right there. It's very, very, very important that we see the motive behind Zophar's counsel. Okay? He's telling Job, Job, you need to repent. You need to put wickedness far from you. Why? You agree with that? He's saying, Job, if you repent, what's going to happen to your life? It's going to get better, right? All your troubles will go away. You'll skip through the daisies, singing a tune. Your fortune will be... Remember we saw that with, with Bildad last chapter, right? Bildad said, you repent, you're going to get your fortune back. You're going to get your money back. You're going to get all this stuff back. It, it, it goes right along with their theology. When we do wrong, God punishes us. When we do what is right, he blesses us and rewards us. And, and um, I couldn't help but draw a, a, a parallel to some of the preachers we see on TV today, but uh, well, I won't do that. Um, but you see what he's saying? He's saying, Job, admit your fault, admit your sin, and then your life will be better. Right? Then everything will go better and you'll, your life will get better there. Okay. Um, this is just a footnote, but there is a form of Christianity that says you come to Jesus and you will have your best life now. All your troubles will go away. Um, God will bless you richly with all sorts of things. And... Maybe we fall into sort of the, the tributive, uh, retributive theology that the friends are falling into. Maybe we don't. But, but do, you, do you see what they're doing here? The, the motive for repenting, the motive for going to God is He's going to make my life better. Do you see that? And that gets very, very, very close to what other counsel that we've seen in this book. We've seen another character speak. We've heard other counsel from another character who said something very close to that. Satan. Do you see how close he gets there to what Satan is saying? Satan said, God, the reason Job worships you is because you made his life so good, right? And now we're seeing Zophar saying, Job, the reason you should do this is because God will make your life better. But that's not where he stops. Look at the next verse. Verse 18. Then you would trust because there was hope and you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down and none would disturb you. And many would entreat your favor. What did he just do? 
He said, Job, you need to repent and God's going to make your life better. And Job, that will be your what? Your peace, your, your hope. Oh. Let's, let's um, hit the pause button for a minute here. Every now and then we'll trip over things in Scripture that get to the absolute heart, to the absolute bottom of an issue. Okay? And, and, and let me illustrate that. At the end of the day, what God is looking for in people is a heart that loves Him supremely and trusts Him and hopes in Him and lives for Him, right? Would you agree with that? That's sort of one of those foundational issues, a heart that trusts Him, that hopes in Him, that loves Him. When you read narrative in Scripture, when you read stories, one of the things that we need to be looking for is where are these people ultimately putting their trust and hope? you agree with that? Because that is a foundational issue. That is a life-shaping, life-transforming issue. And one of the, what the author is doing right now, through the counsel of his friends, he's starting to show us where the characters are really putting their hope and trust. Do you see that now? Do you see that connection? Back, back the tape up for a minute. Zophar says, Job, the innocent don't suffer. You need to go to God. You need to repent. God will make your life better. And that, Job, will be your hope. Shake your head, raise your hand if you're not following me here, okay? Because I'm seeing a bunch of people that either need coffee or aren't tracking with me. Okay? Does that make sense? Bottom line, Zophar is saying, Job, your hope is in your life getting better. Your hope is in repenting. That's a good thing. But your hope, the bottom hope, is going to be in your life getting better. Now let me ask you a question. Should that be where our hope and trust ultimately lies? I didn't hear you. No. Let me ask you another question. How easy is it for us when we're in suffering or we're trying to encourage somebody in suffering to put all our trust and all our hope in our circumstances changing? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that so easy? And I think, even though it's got a theological spin on it, even though there's theology falling off of his counsel here, I think that's what Zophar is saying. He's saying, Job, your hope will be when God changes everything and blesses you and restores all this. Because Job has said what? So far, he said, my hope is in him. So if that's the right way to understand it, here's what I think he's saying. Well, I guess we just had our discussion, didn't we? Where is Zophar suggesting that hope is found? Hope is found in what? In things changing, life getting better. What? Let's, let's draw that out one more step. Let's say that's our counsel to people that are suffering. Let's say to the person that gets cancer... Well, we just know you're, you're going to get a cure and you're going to be better. Or let's just say to the person that's, uh, whose adult child has gone off into sin and has rejected God, well, I just know that that child's going to be, uh, going to come to Christ. And, and, or, uh, the person struggling in their marriage, well, I just know God's going to bless your marriage and restore your marriage. And what happens when we encourage people to put hope in a change in circumstance? Okay, if the circumstances don't play out like that, then they're broken again. Their hope goes down the toilet with the change in circumstances, right? Yeah, that's true. That is a very hard thing to say. 
Now, no, it is. Knowing what we've learned about God's purpose in suffering from this book, knowing that, how does encouraging people to put their hope in a change of circumstances distract them from what God is doing? What's God doing in suffering? What are some of the things He's doing? He's seeing us through it. Okay, he's he's okay. He's he's changing me, isn't he? What else is he doing? He's putting our focus on him. Okay, what else is he doing? An eternal perspective. Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. He's changing us. He wants us to be focused on Him. Um, God is doing wonderful things in us through suffering. And the reason I think this is a big deal is because when we put our hope and our trust in some trial, in our circumstances changing, we miss making God our treasure in the midst of the suffering in terms of all that he wants to do. Do you agree with that? Keith, could we examine this alongside, um, you know, like um, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, where choose this, choose obedience, mm-hmm. this is what's going to happen. Right. Choose disobedience, these bad things are going to happen. Or even with Christ about the build your house on the rock, not right. the sand. Yes. Are, are you saying, how are we going to connect this to the passages that clearly say, if you do this, this will happen? Is that what you're saying? Um, yes, the answer is we need to connect those. Um, and I, I would just ask um, for all of your patience. I have a message rolling around in my head. I don't know when it's going to come out, but uh, one of these days, um, what I want to try to do is connect the you reap what you sow principle, which is clearly biblical, to some of the other things that we've been learning in here and do an overview, what does Scripture say about the whole thing? And I've got several pages of notes from just reflections on it and thinking about it. So it's coming, okay? We'll connect those in a little bit. But I, when I do it, I want to make sure, well, just being real open with you, I want to get through a lot of Job before I do that because I don't want to jump the gun too early and then miss some something really good that comes in Job later on. So, uh, But yes, we do need to connect it to that at some point. Um, but for now, I think we all agree that um, our hope and our trust should not be in a change of circumstances. Our hope and trust should be in God and in Him and in what He's doing in the midst of that. Okay. So Zophar is suggesting that hope is found in Job repenting and the restoration of his fortune and change of circumstances. Now, Job is going to respond in verses 12 uh, and 13 and 14 here. So let's see, uh, let's see how far we can get into this because there, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff here, but um, let's, let's just uh, see how far we can get. Chapter 12, verse 1, Then Job responded, Truly then you are the people. And with you, wisdom will die. <laughs> I guess you didn't need to get past the language barrier to see that. But I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. And who does not know such things as these? Am I a joke to my friends, the one who called on God and he answered him? The just and the blameless man is a joke. Do you hear the sarcasm? I'm obviously you laugh, so I assume you did. What else do you hear? Justifying himself. Justifying himself, defensiveness. What else do you hear? Okay. Maybe some pride. What else do you hear? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right.
Okay, very good. What is one of the character qualities that very often you see with sarcasm? Sarcasm has a sister. What's that? Well, yeah, it could be. Um, maybe sarcasm has a whole family that follows them around. But bitterness. You, you can be sarcastic in a kind of funny sort of joking way. But a lot of the time, sarcasm is a cover for bitterness. It goes with bitterness. And um, again, you know, I wish we had the video, so we've got to be tentative on some of these conclusions. I read this, and I hear the things you're talking about. I hear a very sarcastic man who is starting to become bitter. Verse 4, am I a joke to my friends? He says, am I just somebody you guys joke about? And you, you can see, and you've got to have the picture. He's sitting there in the ash heap, black sores, worms, infection, scraping himself, blood flowing, eyes swollen shut. That's him saying, am I a joke to you guys? And why is he a joke? Verse 4, because he called on God. Because he's hoping in God. And again, if we're not convinced of the sarcasm, look at verse 5. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt is prepared for those whose feet slip. It's really easy, he says, when you're not the one going through it to misunderstand what's going on. So his sarcasm and his um, bitterness, I think, continues to grow. On down the chapter. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that reinforces what we were saying a minute ago, doesn't it? Yeah. I, and and I, think, I think what he's saying, because obviously God hasn't answered him about this yet, but I think what he's saying is in the past, you know, I've hoped in God, I've trusted in God, he answers me. And he's, he's holding out for that, right? Remember, he's holding out for God to answer him. He's holding out for God to give him some reason, some, some explanation for what's going on. And, and, and that's what they're mocking. You know, Sheila, you're right on, because he's saying, you know, I'm holding out that God will answer me. And they're saying, just repent and God will restore your life. He doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to talk to you about this. So that's that's a good point. Yes, yes, yeah, that's exactly what, at the end of verse four. Yes, that's what he's saying. Yeah, that's right. That's In, in what verse now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. In, in that summary part, yeah, I agree. That's what he's saying. Um, yeah. 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 You know, the last thing he said back in chapter 10 was that very same thing because he ended up right back where he was in chapter 3. It's not worth it. So, yeah, I, I think that's definitely there in play still. Um, th this seems to be more directed at the friends than God, but obviously it's there too. Um, and then he's going he's gonna to go on for a minute. He's going to start in verse 6, and he's going to all the way down to the end of the chapter, basically saying this one thing. Well, let's, let's keep bring up to speed our notes here. Uh, how, is in Job, how is Job interpreting the counsel of his friends? What have we said? He's defensive. He thinks that uh, he's a joke to them. Uh, he's sarcastic. He's obviously interpreting uh, his counsel, the counsel there. Um, 
not helping, not, not true. They're still deceitful uh, friends, according to Job. And then he has this long section where he basically says one thing, and, and I don't know totally how it connects to the context here. But look at, verse, uh, look at verse 9. He says, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? And then from verses 11 all the way down to the end of the chapter, he gives us you know, 25 ways of all the things that God does. He does everything. So, so there is no escaping the fact that God is the one causing all this. God is the one doing all this. Um, maybe some of you can see a connection to what's following, but um, I, I didn't see a real big connection between defending the fact that God was doing it and what he was saying previous. Um, it's, it's true. It's right on. I'm not really sure how it connects there, and perhaps it's just um, we're starting to see Job pinging from one issue to the other, and uh, perhaps that just reflects uh, where he is right now. Unless he's responding to the fact that he's supposed to repent and then it will all get better, and he's saying God is in control. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thought. Although, remember, in Job's mind, God is doing all this, but he's not right in doing it. So, you know, you'd think maybe he would be defending himself more here. But yeah, you could be right. That's probably a good possibility there, Cheryl. Uh, but nonetheless, that's basically what he says in verses 10 all the way down to verse 25. Look at verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has understood and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. He says that twice now. He's, he's saying, you guys aren't telling me anything I don't already know. Um, Verse 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue with God. So he says, God knows everything, right? But I still want to go talk to him. I still want to argue my case with him. Now, verse 4, he's going to turn and look at the friends again. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would completely be silent and that it would become, and that would become your wisdom. <laughs> um, What's uh, what? How does the modern day proverb go? It's uh, it's better to say nothing and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Um, maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. Please hear my argument and listen to the contentions of my lips. Will you speak what is unjust for God and speak what is deceitful for Him? Will you show partiality for Him? Will you contend for God? What he now? What he's doing is he's saying, guys. You're, mis- you're misrepresenting God. You're speaking lies. You're, you're doing God injustice by what you're saying. And he's saying, you guys don't need to be speaking for God because you're wrong. Verse 9, will it be when he, God, examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you. So, so now Job's turned around on them and says, wait till God comes and talks to you about this. Then you'll see that you're in the wrong, that you're misrepresenting God. He says he wants to he wants to speak to God directly, uh, not his friends who claim to speak for God but speak lies. And he says, if God comes to you, he will reprove you. Verse eleven: Will not his majesty terrify you, and the dread of him fall on you? And all your memorable all your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Take that. Here's what I think of all your advice. Verse 13, Be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let come on me what may. He says, guys, just be quiet. Let me go argue my case to God. And whatever happens, happens. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Verse 15, And though he slay me, I will have hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. How many of you have heard that verse before? It's probably one of the most, uh, you know, Job's not a really popular book, but it's probably the verse that a lot of people have heard before. And um, it's interesting because getting into the book of Job, I kind of had this verse in the back of my mind. 
And I've wondered, once we kind of came up to this verse, what it actually means. And as it turns out, we need to have a a little uh, pull-the-car-over discussion here. What does this verse mean? Can you guys see that? I put three different versions of uh, Bible translations here up on the, the board there. Are those in your notes? Oh, okay. I'm glad I did that. So you can, you can see them there. But listen, listen to three different versions and how they handle this verse, okay? Because this verse is not straightforward, and it's very important that we get, our handle on, get a handle on what he's saying, what he's not saying. Uh, TNK is the Tanakh. It's, it's the Jewish Publication Society um, English version of the Hebrew Scriptures, okay? It, it, it tends to have more of a Jewish flavor. It tends to actually deal with the Hebrew text a little more. Uh, it also tends to be liberal sometimes. So listen to what the Tanakh says. He may well slay me. I may have no hope, yet I will argue my case before him. Now tell me in the Tanakh, the TNK, what is, what, what is those guys that translated the verse that way, what are they saying there? What, what's the verse saying? Yeah, if I die, if God kills me, then there goes my hope. Okay, but you know what? Even if that's the case, I'm still going to argue my case before him. Okay, that's one way to take it. Uh, The New American Standard, which probably many of you have, goes like this. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And that's saying something very different, isn't it? That's saying... Even if God kills me, I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to hope in him. I'm still going to believe in him. I'm still going to live for him. Okay? And, and that's, that's usually how people take the verse. In fact, the King James Version, I think, says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And translates uh, the word there, trust. Listen to the New Living Translation, which is normally not my favorite translation. Um, but listen to how it takes the verse. God might kill me. But I have no other hope. So I'm going to argue my case with him anyway, kind of thing. That's taking it a whole different way. It's saying God might kill me, but you know what? Where else am I going to go? So I'm going to continue to hope in him. I'm going to argue my case with him. Now, why do three different groups of three very smart people translate this verse so differently? Because you would agree with me, there's a big difference between the Nazbi, which says, even if he kills me, I'm going to hope in him, versus the Tanakh, which says, if he does kill me, there goes my hope. Night and day difference, isn't there? What's going on? There's a textual error. There's a textual variant. And I, I, I hate to get too technical on you guys, but one way to take it is no hope, And the textual variant revolves around the word no. Because the other way to take it is hope in him. And I know you're looking at that saying, how can it be no hope versus hope in him? Well, the answer is because the word no and the prepositional phrase in him are very, 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 very similar in Hebrew. And the Masoretes, the guys that were responsible for taking the Old Testament and copying it accurately the Masoretes from the the 7th and 8th century, um, they put a little note in the margin that said, um, I think think it's, this is the way it's written, but this is how you have to take it. So the nevertheless is, is implied. It's supplied, actually, based on how you take the verse. So, and let me tell you this. This this is Bible interpretation class 101, and and this this is really worth our time, okay? Just trust me for a minute. Um, We could look up concordances and dictionaries and commentary. We, We could do all that. What is always the final determiner of meaning in any document and in the Scriptures as well? The context. You agree with that? Okay. So here's my question to you. Given the context, which one fits better? Yeah, Rich. I'm looking at the next verse now. 
Yep. Yes, the next verse. Okay. Yeah, this would refer back to what he's speaking of in the verse we're talking about. Okay, whatever this activity, um, nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him, and this also will be my salvation. Actually, better translated, my deliverance there. Okay? Yes, Sheila. I'm sorry. Were, were, were you done, Rich? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Sheila. Yeah. They, yeah, they would not recognize Christ, but they would recognize that trusting God is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Brenda? Well, I was wondering, you know, the passage that we kind of were going through, why was this in here? Yeah, yeah. He is, yeah. Because on one hand, he sees his life destroyed when mm-hmm. he's slain. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, in those verses, he says, this is the God I know he is. Yeah. So yeah. how does that mesh together? So what side of the fence is he on? <laughs> no, I know, I know. I know. And that and I appreciate you saying that because when I look at this, I think, you know what? I can show you multiple verses in the rest of the book of Job that show him in a state on both sides of that fence. So it's like which one is he? Uh Rich said something very important. Look at the next verse. This also will be my salvation. And and what we do in in Christian, you know, we're Christians, we're believers, we're New Testament people. We always read salvation as conversion, justification from, from uh, sin. That's not what it means here. Uh, salvation, defined by the context, is um, his deliverance from his suffering. Okay, Being saved from his suffering is what salvation means in this context. So let me ask you a question. If what he's saying in verse 16 is, Getting the chance to argue my case before God is my deliverance. Does that help you to figure out what the verse means? If God kills him, I'm sorry, D, you started to speak. Go ahead. Well, it sounds like he's saying if he kills me, I'll be delivered. I'll be suffering. Okay. That would be if if God kills him and that is his deliverance. I think what the context is saying is getting the chance to argue his case before God is his deliverance. Okay. Uh, and you're right because he said that in other places. Maybe maybe we could take it like that too. But th- this is going to go back to whatever the closest. Um, they thought you guys remember in grammar school the rule the closest antecedent right? Remember that. So he's saying, my salvation is getting a chance to argue my ways before God. If God kills him, and if his deliverance is all about getting a chance to argue his case before God, what happens? There's no hope. Okay. So, so even though I love this verse and I want to take it the way the Nazbe take it, takes it, I think that fits the context better. Because all his eggs are in the basket of getting a chance to argue his case before God. And if he could just have the chance to argue his case before God, God would see that Job's right and he's wrong and then would deliver him from the problem, from the suffering, and that would be it. Yeah, Rusty. Well, there's nothing wrong with that picture. I'm just saying it... it, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that Job Job wants the chance to show God that he's wrong and he, and Job is right. I know, I know. 
No, I, I don't mean that's a bad place to land. I'm just saying the way that most people take this verse is, I don't care if God kills me, I'm going to put my trust in Him. And we say, yay, that's how we should all be. And that's what the, not what the, I don't think the verse is saying. But you're right. What it is saying is very, very, very good. Everybody's rest, all, all the translate, all the translators are wrestling with this. That you can take it like this, or you can take it like this, and then try to smooth it out to make sense. But I mean, I'll tell you, literally there's two words. There's two words in Hebrew. There's the word lo, and the word for hope. Uh, lo is the normal word for not or no. Um, and you can repoint lo, and it actually means in him. It's a prepositional phrase, in him. So all the translators are, what they're getting all comes back to, the, to these two issues. Um, and there's, you know, a half a dozen ways that you can take it. But, but again, and this is, this is important, and I hope I'm not boring you or losing you or discouraging you, but the context has to be the thing that determines meaning. has to be. And if he's, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. Well, let me ask you a question here. Zophar's counsel was, Job, you're wrong, you're sinning, repent, God will make your life better, and that needs to be your hope. If we're understanding this verse correctly, Job is saying, I'm innocent, God's wrong, and my hope is in a chance to tell him that. Okay? <laughs> Go for it. Look at the verse that goes before that where okay. I'm saying, why should I take my own life in my hands? You know, if I read all three of those before, it could be, why do I take my own life in my own hands when my hope is in God? And because I'm righteous, I have an opportunity to be restored to mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and that, actually, that actually supports, I think, what I'm saying because I don't, I don't think he's still going to go through with this. And you're gonna, we're going to see it because in verses 20 and following, he's going to tell us, the reader, exactly what he wants to tell God. So he wants to go through with that. And I think that's why he can say what he says in 15. He, he is confident that he's righteous. And so he says, you know, you know, God might kill me and my hope would go away, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because I think I am righteous. So I know that's not how you're taking it, but I agree with you on verse 14. I agree with you what he's saying. Yeah, I'm just throwing out something that says, well, I'm not going to take my life in my own hands. Right. I would rather go before God. Right. Though he slay me, I'd still rather go before him. Okay. Because that is my only hope. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As the NLT says, I have no other hope. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, no. And, and again, um, uh, you know, in truth and advertising here, this is a very difficult book because it's old, because it's narrative poetry. Um, I read just in translating, I think it's chapter 13, there were like five words that it's the only time they're ever used in the whole Bible. Um, and there are so many verses like this verse where you can take it, 
You say, well, what do the commentators say? One says this, one says that. One, you know, so they don't help you most of the time. So, so yeah, and, and that's a possibility. And those of you that, that said, you know, you see sort of the NASB way of taking it, you know, that, that's fine too. Because um, like we said, we've seen Job in this book on both sides, haven't we? We've seen him saying, my hope is in God. I don't care what happens. And we've also seen him saying, my only hope is getting to argue my case and vindicating my name before God. So maybe we don't pound the pulpit too hard either way, right? I'm sorry, which of the three were you thinking was I think the way that Tanakh takes it is, is the best way to take it in the context, meaning he's putting all his hope in arguing his case before God, but if he does that, God might kill him and then all his hope would go away. You know, another thing to think of, he's, he's working himself up to actually arguing his case before God. He hasn't gone to God yet and said, here's what I think of you, okay? He's talked to God a few times. He's said, leave me alone. He's said, you know, I think you're being unjust. But in terms of laying forth the legal case, which is what he wants to do, he hasn't done that yet. And in verses 20 and following, actually look at verse 18. He says, behold now, I have prepared my case. Here it comes. And he says, uh, who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And then verses 20 and following, all the way through the end of chapter 14, is the case that he wants to bring against God. Okay? And uh, so we will talk about that next time. You guys can chew on verse 15 and digest it. And if you have any wonderful insights, let me know. Um, okay? Yes. Yeah. Kill, death, yeah. yeah. In fact, it's interesting. Um, the word slay is, when, when you're learning beginning Hebrew and you're learning all the different forms of the word, you know, third person, second person, first person, all different cases and all that, this is one of the vocabulary words they, do, they use it in, actually. So this is a word we learned early on there. So, All right. More news at 10. Let's pray.